I've got a, um, really, I have to say this is a prophetic message to share um, tonight and I'm really encouraged and challenged by it and I trust that you will be as well. And uh, something really interesting happened around this message because at the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the week, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to speak about awakening. You know how it's been prophesied that there's going to be an awakening around the world. And uh, so I began to, to look throughout the New Testament looking for references to what that kind of looks like. And uh, I think it was Wednesday morning, as I was waking up, I just heard the Lord speak the phrase, awake to righteousness, awake to righteousness. And uh, that evening, our daughter Kim, who leads the, uh, the young adults group, came over because she wanted me to look over what she was uh, planning on sharing on Sunday morning because this Sunday morning is the first time she preaches in our Sunday morning service. And, uh, and I said, well, what are you, what's, your, what's your topic? What, what are you preaching on? She said, well, being awake. Not woke, but being awake. <laughs> so you're going to get one aspect of it from me tonight and if you're here on Sunday morning, you'll get a completely different one. And uh, it provoked in me that when, when, I, when I felt the Lord asking me to speak about awakening, it provoked the question in me, what does awakening look like? And uh, I felt to share a rather obvious truth. Anybody here um, have trouble sleeping or you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and can't go back to sleep and you're kind of awake in the wee hours and it's very quiet outside. Well, here's an obvious truth. I can be awake even while everyone else is asleep. And you can be awake even while everybody around you is asleep. And, of course, we're starting to talk spiritually here. And so as I was looking into this, I found that there are three passages of Scripture where Paul talks specifically about um, being awake, talks about awakening. And each passage that he shares about this in is to a different church. And these are all first or second generation churches. So these are churches that were birthed in revival. And yet he has some, uh, some very strong things to say about this. I'm going to start with uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 31 through 34. And Paul is dealing here with what was one of the more difficult churches that he was responsible for. And the reason that it was difficult was because they were extremely rich in the gifts of the Spirit. They would come together in their meetings and everybody would be prophesying. People would be healed. People would be saved. People would be delivered. The gifts of the Holy Spirit were being poured out among them. But they lacked character they were very in fact they were poor in character and it amazes me when I look through the bulk of the New Testament how much of it is aimed at who we are and how we manifest who we are and sometimes we manifest who we're not called to be is that right and uh so in 1 Corinthians 15, 31 to 34, in verse 31, he says, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And I looked at that verse and I saw that he was saying that his heart for them, this church that he's responsible for, his heart for them is so great that he is actually prepared to die for them. He's prepared to lay down his life for these people. And then he goes on to say, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And I wondered about how I would explain that particular scripture, but let me summarize it like this. The spiritual battle that Paul had encountered in Ephesus, one of the most demonic cities of that time, 
the uh, spiritual battle that Paul encountered in Ephesus was so great that when you look at the account of it, which is in 2 Corinthians 1, we won't go to it now, he says that he despaired even of life itself. That's how great the battle was against what the Lord wanted to do in that city. And yet, um, because he had despaired even of life itself and God had brought him through it, he could see that uh, he could see that in saying, "If the dead do not rise, let's just go back to our old way of life." He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying that the spiritual battle that you go through is worth it if you can just have eternity in view and not just what you're going through at the moment. And so then he turns his attention to them in this way because he begins to. What he's speaking to them, he's speaking to them in the light of eternity. He's saying to them, if this is, if what we believe in is so important, it's more important than your physical life here on the earth. If you can look at this in light of eternity, how are you living? It's the question that he's asking. In verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. There were some people in that body of believers who were just there for the ride. They were along for the ride. They didn't want it to cost them anything. They didn't, uh, they didn't want to get to the place where what they were doing, which was living in opposition to the word of God, they were prepared to change. They wanted the benefits of a relationship with God without a cost. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And where did the cross lead to? It led to that place of death. And of course, most of us here in this room, I trust, are not going to be physically martyred for Jesus, but we are all called to die to self. And so this is the road that he's going down with this. See, our lives are influenced by what we believe and who we associate with. And this saying, evil company corrupts good habits, I was actually a little bit surprised because usually when Paul quotes stuff from from somebody else, it's usually drawn from the Old Testament. But he was trying to speak to them in their language. He wanted to connect with them with he wanted to connect with them where they were. And so he actually quoted a Greek, a famous Greek philosopher of the day who said that evil company corrupts good habits. And you can actually find that supported all through the Old Testament. So he's saying uh, that sin is contagious, but righteousness is not. Sin is contagious, but righteousness is not. Who knows that if I or you hang around with the wrong people long enough, some of their behaviour or their speech or their way of thinking is going to rub off on you. And you might be a bit of a good influence on them, but you cannot give them your righteousness. And as we're going to discover later on, this righteousness, awake to righteousness, this righteousness is actually a gift. So none of what you're hearing tonight is to do with good works. The good works carry on from being awakened to something that Jesus died and rose again for us to have and not just have, but to walk out in truth. Is that right? Sin is contagious, but righteousness is not. And he's asking them to wake up, awake to righteousness. So I thought about that and then... I looked at the next passage of scripture, which is again written to a church in a different church. And this time he's writing to the church in Rome and we're going to Romans 13, 11 through 14. And he says this, Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, when he's talking about salvation there, he's not talking about the process of putting your faith in Jesus. 
He's talking about the return of Christ. And so no matter where you are in the timeline since the cross, if you're closer to now than you were to then, you are closer to our salvation than when you first believed. Is that right? And so here he is again. Come on, wake up. Jesus is coming about, Jesus is coming back and we must be about the master's business. He goes on to say, verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Which begs the question, what do these works of darkness look like? Well, Paul gets very specific and he does something very interesting. In verse 13, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, and not in strife and envy. And so Paul here is contrasting what it's like to walk according to light as opposed to walking in darkness. And his examples of walking in darkness or being asleep, are placed into three groups. He's got revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, and strife and envy. He's put it into three groups. And when I see uh, anybody in the Bible using specific words to describe something that he's speaking about, I really want to dig in and know what they were talking about. Sometimes we see uh, words used in the word of God and we think we know what they mean. And yet when we go digging a little bit, we find out that there's a little bit more to it than what we might have anticipated. And so these three groups, when he talks about revelry and drunkenness, revelry, which is like, let's party, right? Is that pretty much how you would describe the word revelry? Well, when I looked into the strongest concordance for this particular verse, I found that revelry, the word revelry, is drawn from the word revel. And a revel was a, and forgive the old English, but this is out of strongest concordance, a revel was a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honour of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before houses of male and female friends, hence used generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. It's actually equating this partying lifestyle with idolatry because Bacchus was the god of wine. Bacchus, in that culture, was the god of having a good time. Who here has ever served the god of having a good time? Or what you thought was a good time? I did. I ended up having a really bad time. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this revelry thing and I'm, and I'm thinking, God, he's actually drawing a connection in the spiritual realm between a partying lifestyle and serving an idol. And then he puts the word drunkenness. But then I thought, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to flick past it and assume what I, I know what he's talking about here. So I looked up the, uh, the Greek word, and at first I pronounced it incorrectly because it's meth, M-E-T-H-E, right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, my goodness, uh, I don't think they had methamphetamine back in the days of Jesus. And in fact, they didn't. But this is actually, this word meth, it's actually pronounced methe. And in the Strong's Concordance, I found that methe was an actual intoxicant. Something that gets you high, something that gets you drunk, something that 
So here he's talking about a parting lifestyle where you're chasing after something to escape from the reality of where you are or who you are or how your circumstances are. And he's saying if you're living like this, you are actually walking in darkness. I can say stand up if your testimony is that. And I'd get a whole bunch of people who would stand up and say, I used to live like that and I know it's walking in darkness. And then he goes on to describe lewdness and lust. Lewdness is any sexual activity outside marriage. And unfortunately, in today's society, when I qualify this, I have to say, when I talk about marriage and what the Bible describes as marriage is, is marriage between a male and a female. And an actual male and an actual female, not somebody who identifies as a male or identifies as a female. Yes, and we qualify it even further by saying one at a time. And in God's intention, it should only be one anyway. Is that right? So here he's saying... Uh, you need to put aside every sexual activity outside marriage and uh, also put aside adultery, which is, of course, outside marriage, but is a betrayal of the marriage covenant. And, of course, the marriage covenant is given to us as a picture of Jesus and his bride. And uh, so he talks about lewdness and he talks about lust. And lust here he describes as licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness and insolence. There's something insolent about somebody who throws caution to the winds and just has sex with whoever they want to. And when I saw the word outrageousness used to describe lust, I was reminded that there used to be a crime in Australia called Outraging Public Decency. Anyone ever heard of that? You could actually be charged with the crime of outraging public decency. These days, it's celebrated. Public, the, the outrage against public decency is actually celebrated. So here you have uh, Paul talking to the Roman church and he's talking about their behaviour as if it's not quite where it needs to be, might I suggest. And the third category that he talks about is strife and envy. And strife is when you get into contentions and debates, strife and wrangling over things. Just get on Facebook and quote anything from Scripture and see what happens. Somebody will want to have a contention or a debate with you. And then envy. And the word envy comes, it's like a perverted uh, form of zeal. You are so zealous for your position that you become indignant and you're jealous. Envy is a very insidious sin that wraps itself around your heart. You have to be very, very careful with it, particularly in Christian ministry because it's a big, big trap to compare your ministry with somebody else's because God has gifted different people in different ways. And so what's the answer to all of this? The revelry, the drunkenness, the lewdness, the lasciviousness, the envy, the strife. He says, he gives us the answer in verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Our identity is in Christ. Is that right? He is the new man and he has given us a precious gift. His sacrifice for us means that we have been given a gift of righteousness. It's a robe. It's a gift of righteousness in our identity, and we put it on. 
Put on Christ. When you put on Christ, you're putting on the righteousness that's been given to you. You're not striving, trying not to do this and not to do that. You're putting on the robe of righteousness by faith and saying, Lord, I'm going to walk in who you've called me to be, not who I used to be. Romans 5.17 says, For if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, he's talking about the original sin of Adam, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. None of us here in this room or watching online are called to be victims. In fact, walking out a victim mentality is opposite to what the gospel says about you. And you might have a whole bunch of reasons why you consider yourself to be a victim, but when you stack them up against the word of God, they don't add up. It's not who you are. You might have been a victim in the past, but God's uh, word over you and the precious blood of Jesus means your freedom has been purchased. And so that's the second time he talks to the Roman church. So he's talked to the Corinthian church. He's talked to the Roman church. And both of the times he's talking about awakening and being awake. And the third time Paul calls for awakening is in his letter to the Ephesian church. Now these are strong churches. These are strong churches. These are first, second generation churches that uh, walk in the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These churches are birthed in revival and yet Paul here is counting each, is calling each one of them to account and he's doing it for a purpose. In Ephesians 5 verse 11, he says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, there we are again, but rather expose them. When you expose something and bring it into the light, it loses its power. You know, if you've been, let's go back to this victim mentality thing for a minute. If you've ever been the victim of somebody, if you've ever been a victim of circumstance or something really bad has happened to you, and in fact somebody's done something really bad to you, if you keep that thing in darkness and every now and then you kind of peek under the covers to see if it's still there, I want to tell you that thing has the power to poison your life, poison your attitudes, poison your actions. But the Bible says that when we bring something into the light, it loses its power. Light casts out darkness. Darkness cannot cast out light. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. He's talking about people that are walking in shame. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, I remember preaching about this a few months ago. And that verse uh, in, in Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul actually says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And when I looked at the, uh, the complete Jewish Bible translation of that scripture, it's a lot more blunt. It says, You used to be darkness. You used to be darkness. Darkness that had such a hold on you that you were indistinguishable from the darkness that possessed you. And so I, I, looked, at, uh, I looked at this in light of Paul's ministry and what, he was, what the purpose was that he had behind writing to these churches in this manner because he was very concerned that they weren't walking in the fullness of what Jesus had died and rose again for them to have. And he had a purpose. You'll, you'll remember in one of those earlier passages, I said that, the, that he said the day of our salvation is nearer than when you first began. And it, those, those apostles in, the, in that first century church, they all walked and lived in the anticipation that Jesus was, was going to come back at any time and that the people they were responsible for needed to be ready. And the more that those people walked in light, the more power they had to draw other people out of darkness. 
You've only got to look at moths, go for a street light to see what light does when it shines in darkness. Light attracts people. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You can say, I am light. Jesus said it over you. He said, I'm the light of the world. And a couple of chapters later, he said, you're the light of the world. And so when I see uh, Paul talking in this way and emphasizing it to three different churches in three different letters, I see that he could see beyond where they were at and see what they were called to. Because he knew and prophesied that there would be a great harvest before the return of Christ. And he wanted to raise up people who walked in their identity in such fullness that that harvest would not miss one person that God had positioned to be drawn into his kingdom. And so... What he's really talking about, when you look at across, across these three examples, he's talking about an awakening coming. He's talking about um, something that happens where um, the, the, the glory of God comes in such a way that people know that they need to get right with God. But who's going to lead them into that right understanding of who God is? If God's people look, think and behave no differently to the culture around them, how are they going to draw that culture into a relationship with Jesus? They're just going to go, well, you're just like me, man. What's different about you? Whereas they should be asking us, what is it that's different about you? Because of what we carry, because we walk in light, because we don't allow those shadows of darkness to encroach upon us. We don't keep those doors closed in our heart that blocks the Lord from coming in and flinging that door open and letting all the bats fly out that have been growing there for a long time and letting light in so that we can walk free. And so in light of what he sees as an awakening before the return of Christ, he calls to God's people and he says, wake up. Because when awakening comes, and make no mistake, it is coming. God desires that there be a people that are already awake. Because only those who are already awake can bring somebody who's just coming out of darkness into full wakefulness. Is that right? God desires that there be a people already awake, ready to steward the awakening so that those who come into the kingdom know exactly what it looks like and that they have people that they, that, that, that they can look to and go, that person is an example of who I know I am called to be. So that they're not stumbling around in darkness looking for examples of people to follow or to be influenced by, or drawn into the kingdom by. I sense in the Lord that we are in a season where, and I've been saying this for a while, we're in a season where God is about to break out. He spoke to me about this seven years ago. And ever since then, I regularly preach on revival because I know that revival slash awakening is what is on God's heart. And I also see that, uh, that whatever you might be going through at the moment, God has a purpose in it. You're not walking in faith if you cannot say there's a purpose in what I'm going through. God wants to entrust you with more than you could imagine. 
but he doesn't want it misused. And so uh, over the last month or so, yeah, over the last month, God gave me two separate prophetic words for Australia. And I want to uh, share those two prophetic words with you. Some of you have heard them, some of you you haven't. Uh, The most recent one was just this last Monday up in the prayer room. But about a month ago, the Lord gave me this prophetic word for Australia and specifically uh, the church in Australia. And what I felt the Lord say was, our time of sifting is at hand. Everybody know what sifting is? It sorts the good from the bad, right? Luke twenty-two thirty-one is a scripture that he took me to where it says, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Do you know who that reminds me of? It reminds me of Joseph. Joseph had brothers. Joseph was sifted. If anybody in the Old Testament was sifted, it was Joseph. He had this incredible vision of the wonderful things that God was going to do in his life. All his brothers and his mum and dad were going to bow down before him and he was proud and arrogant enough to share that vision with his family. And we know what happened. His brothers came and got him. They threw him down a well. They pretended he was dead. He went into uh, great captivity. He was thrown in prisons that are totally unlike any prison any of us have ever (laughs) set foot in. Uh, He was uh, falsely accused of attempted rape. All sorts of stuff happened to him. But at the end of the time, when eventually his brothers stood before him, he knew what the grace of God was all about. And he could say to them, you might have meant this for my harm, but God meant it for good so that a whole nation could be saved is what actually happened. And so when I look at this passage in Luke 22, 31, where Jesus is talking to Peter, right? It's just before Jesus goes to the cross and he knows that Peter's going to betray him. But he calls him Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When Jesus called Peter Simon in this scripture, he was calling out Peter's old nature. Remember, he changed his name. You shall be Peter on this rock of revelation. The church, the ecclesia will be built. But now he's calling out something in Peter that's not right. And he's saying, you're walking in your old identity. And because you're walking in your old identity, the enemy's got an open door into your life. And he's asking for you. He wants to get you. And Jesus didn't say, I'm just going to deliver you out of all that. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. He says, no, 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 I'm praying for you. That when you come through the trials that you're about to go through, you're going to be in a position to strengthen your brethren. That's what God wants to do with you. That's what God wants to do with me. Whatever the trial you're going through at the moment, no matter how horrible and ungodly it might seem, God uses every circumstance in your life for your good and for his glory. You have to be able to find that place of faith when everything is working against you. Because if a season of sifting comes to the church in Australia and it is coming, it is coming like a freight train, you're going to have to be able to stand in the midst of that sifting and go, God is good. God is faithful. I don't understand the storm that we're in. You don't have to understand the storm. You have to just rise above it. Jesus knew it would take some trials for this to happen in Peter's life. And God has a prophetic destiny over our nation. But complacency and prosperity have put the church to a large degree to sleep. And I thought to myself as I read those words that I wrote in my journal a month ago, I thought, no wonder you're reminding me, God, to go back to this prophetic word. 
because this is followed by a prophetic picture that I had. I had a picture of someone tumbling out of bed onto their knees and as they awakened, they stayed on their knees and began crying out to God. When was the last time you cried out to God? Not just because things were going bad, but just because you knew if no matter what you're walking through or how good or bad or indifferent your day might be, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. This prophetic word that the Lord gave me continues on by saying, our comfort is about to be shaken, but we will land on our knees with a fresh zeal for the things of the Lord. You know, if you can establish that before the storm comes, the storm will just will seem like a gentle little breeze. <laughs> Awakening is coming to the church spearheaded by the remnant bride. I had somebody try to tear me up on social media by saying there's no such thing as a remnant. Where's the remnant inscription? My goodness, just do a search. Awakening is coming to the church spearheaded by the remnant bride. The remnant is being warned. Do not compromise. Does this, does this fit my message tonight, this prophetic word? The remnant is being warned. Do not compromise. Do not forge communion with darkness. God says, I will have an authentic bride emerge from Australia and send you to the nations to tear down strongholds and bring revival. But there's going to be some sifting. Can I just share with you that in the last few weeks, I've been getting sifted a bit. In the most bizarre ways. Like some of them, you know, like you can kind of see what God's doing and others you're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> from, it's like from the sublime to the ridiculous. Let me give you the ridiculous. Who here's met our dog Boots. A lot of you guys have met our dog Boots. He's a little miniature fox terrier with a rather nervous disposition. Um, but a very sweet-natured dog. And he's been completely traumatised by the arrival in our house of a little kitten. Now... <laughs> I'm not, an annual, I'm not an animal behavioural psychologist. I did not anticipate that the introduction of a little thing like this was going to send our dog off the deep end. But let me tell you what happened yesterday because he's been behaving really weird. I hope I've gone somewhere with this, but I just <laughs> felt like... <laughs> so yesterday... My wife Kerry's sitting on the lounge and she, she has a, a blanket draped across her knees and that's Boots's spot, right? That's his spot. He'll come kind of, he'll, he'll come slowly over, look at her to make sure it's okay, put his paws across her lap and then put his head down and he'll rest there and that's his spot. Well, the little kitten jumped up on the couch and very, very, it wasn't even sudden, very, very slowly started walking towards the dog and the dog just went I just freaked out totally freaked out and <laughs> then <laughs> we got our cat Sasha is traumatized by the same situation boots is so traumatized that he ran in front of Kerry while they were out jogging and she face-planted onto the footpath. Thank God she wasn't badly hurt. And that's just a very, very minor example of things that are happening on a daily basis 
ever since I got that prophetic word. Now, that's a very, very minor thing, right? In most people's eyes, it's, it's a minor thing. There are other things going on in the background that God's dealing with me about and things that I'm walking through that I thought, my goodness, I thought that this area of my life was dealt with. I thought that this hard attitude was dealt with. I thought this was dealt with. But when God begins to allow a sifting, the circumstances that come against you, even though you may be wronged in the situation, what happens? Well, <laughs> let me ask you this question. When something does some, somebody does something wrong to you, how many of you have got a great 100% response? You're just like Jesus. Give me a hand. I've got one hand. You're going to be like Enoch. You're going to be here no more and just walk with God. If you're walking in that sort of perfection, let me just say that. But, you know, when, when somebody, who's, who's got buttons that, that can get pushed? Who here has people in their life that know exactly how to push the buttons? How many buttons do you have? I didn't think I had these particular buttons, or at least some of them I didn't think I had anymore, but I found out that if the right person pushes the right button, and then I get up the next morning and I'm spending my time with the Lord, and I'm like, Lord? <laughs> anyway, uh, I just see, I'm learning to see all of these things in a positive light. And I am so thankful that I'm not chained to a works mentality. If I was chained to a works mentality, I would think that I would have to earn my way out of my sinful responses to various stimuli. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But if, but if I can find that place of humbly coming before the Lord, he will deal, he will deal, he will deal. But he won't do it if I don't open the door. Unless and until, sometimes it happens this way, he just goes, well, look, I've given you plenty of time to deal with this. So whether you like it or not, now we're going to deal with it. And he's dealing with it. Let's just say there's an easy way to deal with these things. No, no, let's put it, there's a hard way to deal with these things and there's a harder way. The harder way is when we're not prepared to acknowledge what we're doing or what our hard attitude is that God needs to fix. So I've, I had this prophetic vision of the church being sifted in preparation for um, awakening. And then this last Monday night, um, when we were upstairs in intercession, God gave me a vision while people were praying. And uh, as I went to write this down, because I went home and I thought, I really need to write down what I've seen because I felt like this was an important word. Um, I got to a certain point writing it down and I felt the Lord ask me to just lay it aside after I got to a certain point because there's something else that he wants to show me in all of this, but either I'm not ready or it's not the right time or something like that. But let me share with you what I saw. This vision, it was like a, like a I was, it was almost like I was in two places at once. I was up, upstairs in the prayer room and I was looking at, <clears throat> I was looking at a small, very traditional looking white timber church. Now, if you, if you imagine in your heart what a, an old-fashioned church looks like, you know, the A-frame building with the steeple, it's made out of clapboard on the outside, it's got white wash all over it. You know, it's like it's white, it's, it's spick and span. It looked really nice. Now, at first, at first glance, it looked very pristine even and well-preserved. And it had a beautiful appearance. But I heard the Lord say, whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. This is the sort of thing that he would say to the Pharisees. Is that right? To empty religion. This is the sort of thing that Jesus would say to people like that or John the Baptist would say to people like this. 
And then as I looked closer, I could see that sandbags had been placed all around the building. You know, when there's floods in New South Wales and everyone gets these sandbags out and they want to protect their home or protect their business, and in this case, protect the church. And in this particular case, the person responsible for that building had put sandbags all around it. And then um, I realised that it was to protect the building from a flood that was rising from a nearby river. But this flood was not a bad flood. This flood was the river of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, as I sat with the Lord the other morning, I felt the Lord take me inside the building. And uh, when I was inside, I could see that it was completely empty. There were no chairs. There were no pews. There was no pulpit. There was just a bare shell And here was this man who was responsible for this thing and he had a big mop. And he's there and there's water on the floor and he's mopping up this water and he's doing everything in his power to clean up this water and get rid of it. Furiously mopping away this water and then I realised that the water he was trying to mop up and get rid of was actually coming up through the floorboards of this church. This was like an unstoppable flood and this guy was trying to get rid of it. He did not want this water in his building. The river was rising, the flood had started and there was nothing this man could do to stop it. And I felt the Lord say that this flood is a move of the Holy Spirit sweeping through the church in Australia. And the emptiness of this particular building with the water coming up with the, through the floorboards represents how unprepared the church is for what is coming. Totally unprepared. The sandbags represent the resistance of much of the church to the Holy Spirit. We have been left with something that looks beautiful from a distance but is lifeless inside. Have you ever been in a church where the atmosphere is like that? It's like the Holy Spirit has left the building. He's been grieved and quenched so much that he doesn't feel welcome there anymore. I believe God is saying that that time is coming to an end and the move of the Holy Spirit is coming. There's going to be sifting, but we need to see past the sifting to what God is about to release. As we move into a time of ministry tonight, uh, My wife and I were waiting on the Lord today, seeing what the Lord would like to do tonight. And uh, I think we'll deal with the ones first that are to do with hard attitudes or issues that are going on in our lives because much of this message tonight has been in that realm of how God is uh, wanting to take us out of that place of embracing darkness and actually walk in the light instead. And uh, so here are some of the words of knowledge that we got today. The first one is somebody here who is battling with God over an issue and you won't back down, you think you're right, and it causes you to be angry with God. That's very specific. If you are... If you have uh, something going on in your life, maybe some sort of conflict, and the fruit of that conflict is anger toward God, there's something wrong, and God wants to put it right. Um, There's somebody else here, and I would sum this up by saying you're kind of walking in a bit of legalism. And the, this is, Kerry got this picture. It's like you're trying to wash your car and keep it spotless. 
But every time you wash it, the birds come and dirty it up again. You ever, ever had that happen to you when you're washing the car? God says that you're trying to keep your life spotless through your own strength, but it's not working and you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and do the work in you. Um, somebody else here tonight, I believe, you have a talent to serve God with all your heart, but you're reluctant because it means sacrifice and taking your time. And God is saying to you today, come and serve me with your talent. The other one that I had in line with, uh, with these types of word of knowledge was I had a picture of somebody holding on to their chains even though the shackle had been broken. It's kind of like the thing that held you fast so you couldn't move forward into what God has for you God has already broken the shackles that kept you in that place, but you're so comfortable with it, you're hanging on to the chain as if it's still attached to something. God wants you to know that chain is not attached to anything and he wants you to go free. We have a, a, a couple of specific um, physical, uh, we've got some words of knowledge in the physical realm as well. Somebody who's got problems with um, uh, some type of gastric, gastric reflux or uh, regurgitation is the word that Kerry wrote for that one. I had um, somebody with arteriosclerosis, which is a hardening of the arteries. I believe God wants to deal with that. Somebody else with a sore ankle. Um, and someone who has complications from a past surgery, God wants to heal you. And uh, the other one that I got, which was really unusual, was for a condition called rickets, which is um, the medical term is osteomalacia, which is a softness in bones or, or, or bones that haven't developed properly, usually in children. So um, I'm going to put a little bit of soaking music on here. And if you would like to receive ministry in any of those areas, those words of knowledge that have been um, spoken about, um, I believe that God wants to move in power in your life and set you free. Let me uh, caution you in, in one thing to do with the ministry of the word of knowledge. Whenever we minister in the word of knowledge, without fail, when the service is finished and we're about to walk out of the building, somebody will come up to you and say, some people come up to me and say, oh, you know, you had that word of knowledge. I think that was for me. When I'm walking out of the building, is not the time to respond to a word of knowledge. The time to respond to a word of knowledge is when it's given. And so if you've heard these words of knowledge given and you think to yourself, I think that one's for me, respond to it. Because God wants to respond to you as you respond to him. That's why he gives the word of knowledge. That's why the ministry of the word of knowledge exists, so that people can be set free of whatever is holding them where they are. Amen? Let me just put a little bit of this music on. And if you guys would like to come out and receive prayer for any of these, please feel free to.